this morning, if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you have them, if you turn on your Bibles, you can do that too. Turn them on. Genesis chapter 1, such a weird thing to say, isn't it? Turn on your Bibles. Scroll to page 4. When we think about the new year and the life that is coming, the life that, that we have, there are many things that perhaps... Um, that perhaps a pastor would tell you to begin the year with. Um, perhaps they'd tell you to think about dreams and goals. Perhaps they'd tell you to think about um, what you're thankful for for the previous year, which I did at the beginning of the service. Perhaps a pastor would tell you that you should have hope for the coming year. And that's wonderful. These are wonderful thoughts. And I know that many of my brothers are standing in pulpits today doing that. But Today I wanted to do something slightly different. I wanted to begin again. You see, we as a culture have lost our beginning, our understanding of beginning and who we are. And we have, we have decided that we would uh, impose upon the world our own perspective. And I say we because we're guilty of it. Not they. It's not a they. It's not an us-them Everyone is broken. Everyone is in the same place. The Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke makes that evident. We're all on level playing ground. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, just one sitting, go read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in one sitting, and one thing will stand, well, two things will stand out to you. The first thing that will stand out to you is that Jesus is Lord and Savior and that he is amazing. That's the first thing. The second thing that will stand out to you is that there is no hierarchy among humanity. The lame are exalted. The broken are lifted up. The exalted are humbled. The rich are brought down. Everybody's on the same field. And that's not to say that the lame are exalted above the rich. That's not to say that. That's not to say that the Pharisees are somehow less than the tax collector. That's not To say that, what it is to say is that they're all on the same level playing field of God's creation loved by Jesus. So where do we get this idea? Where do we start with this? I think we start with it with a proper framework and worldview which we derive from Genesis chapter 1. We have kind of tossed that in modern American society, even in the church. We've kind of tossed the idea that we derive our worldview from what God set forward at the beginning. So all that is just preface for what we're about to do. I want you to look at three verses in Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at them together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We'll read them, and then we're going to dive right into them, and we're going to have a lot of fun. So Genesis chapter 1, Verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, the the Hebrew Bible is about um, 43% poetry. I know that there's some debate over scholars, from scholars about how to read the Hebrew Bible. There's, there's debate over whether or not 
there's 35% poetry or 45% poetry. In my studies, the Old Testament is about 43% poetry. The, the entire Bible ranks at about 35% poetry. And so what you are reading in Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. And it's beautiful, and there's depth to it, and it's incredible. The way that this is written, and the way that God formed the Bible and preserved it and kept it, is amazing. And it's poetry. And so what we have in academic terms, what we have done as a society, and what many academics have done is gone, well, this is poetry, so you can't, you can't rely on it. It's poetry. And it's thrown. That, I just want to point out before we start, before we start picking this portion apart and really deriving what the Lord has to say to us, I, I want to point out that, that poetry was used all through history for literal purposes. You recorded history with poetry. Poetry was one of our primary methods of expressing ourselves and recording historical reality and fact. Just because it's poetry does not mean you shouldn't take it literally. Let me say that again. Just because it's poetry does not mean you shouldn't take it literally. Now, let's look at this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything in the beginning. The Bible starts with God, and it uses this, I mean, literally starts with God. If you look at the ancient Old Testament text, it says El, Elohim, at the beginning. Elohim, beginning, starts the Bible. So God is the first thing in the Bible. He's the first one. He's also the last thing in the Bible. He's the beginning and the end. He is the subject matter of this book. It's not you. It's not me. He's the subject matter. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it uses this word, created. And the, the word created, as you well know, has three or four different poetic nuance meanings. Three of them are applied here. And because it's poetry, this is the beauty of poetry, all three of them matter. So we have here first God created, and the idea is to sculpt or to cut out. God pulls life from the stone. God in the beginning creates pulling life from nothing. It makes me think about Michelangelo when he was asked about his sculptures. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen these beautiful marble sculptures where he's, he's half, a, a thing is half coming out of a of a block of, a block of marble. Have you seen these? They, he calls them slaves. And they are uh, these human forms that are coming out of a block of marble. And they're not finished. They're caught up in the bottom of the marble. And somebody asked him why he did that. And he said, well, I didn't. And the person pressed him and he said, you see, God has already put the form in the marble. I'm just removing what's in the way. He was describing sculpture as this thing that removes what is on the outside, that tears it off and brings out what was intended to be there all along. So when we think about God creating, we can think about this idea that God exposes what was already intended to be there. Then we have a second definition, to cultivate or to grow. 
Create means to cultivate or to grow. It means to sculpt. It means to cultivate or to grow. Creation is something that derives tender care from the one who is doing it. So God is tenderly caring for what he creates. When it says, in the beginning, God creates, it does not mean in the beginning God starts something and walks away. Now, the definition of the word create in Hebrew means he's engaged with what he made. So just before you go anywhere else, think about that. Think about the fact that God is engaged with you in what he made. He, he actually is, is involved with your life and cares to be involved with your life. The, the idea is cultivating your life. Growing it, tenderly keeping it like a gardener. The third is the standard definition of create, to cause to happen or to make exist. In this word created, therefore, we have existence from nothing. We have engagement in growing and developing. And we have the removal of and building up of substances. So we have engagement from God, we have creation out of nothing, and we have the removal of all that stuff that gets in the way. This is what it says about the character of our God when it says God in the beginning created. He created. He, he didn't start it and walk away. He didn't simply, didn't simply poof it into existence and go, all right, you're on your own. No, he engaged with his creation. He walks with his creation. He's intimately involved with his creation. Every weight that you have felt over the past three years, every single weight he has carried alongside you and walked with you and felt the burden. For goodness sakes, what do you think it means when Jesus says, when it says of Jesus, I, he wept the sovereign God of all creation who knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus weeps. Knowing he's going to resurrect Lazarus, he still weeps. Why? Because it's his pain too. As he walks with you and feels it and knows it. This is the nature of our creator God. Note that God creates out of nothing. He needs no base. He needs nothing to create with. Unlike Michelangelo, who uh, very firmly agreed that God is the ultimate creator, Michelangelo needed a big base of marble in order to bring some artwork into the world. Yet God needs nothing. He needs absolutely nothing. He builds on nothing. The Bible says he hangs the stars in space. There is no work he is building on top of. There is no work that God is building on top of. He is the prime creator, the first designer. There is nothing that he builds on top of. God, in the beginning, created. This means he is in charge of all history, and this is part of his character. God, by nature, is creative. He is creating by nature. And we see this even at the very end of the book when it says, Behold, I am making all things new. At the very end, in Revelation chapter 21, you're familiar with this passage. 
Behold, I am making all things known. That's a continuous action phrase, meaning he's at the end of the story just getting started. That phrase that we read in Revelation 21, when it says, uh, we translate it, it is finished. That's not what that says. It says, behold, it is born. It is born. There's a birth. At the end of the book is when it starts. At the end of it is when it starts. That's when everything takes off. God creates, and he continues to create for eternity. This is his nature, who he is. The closer we get to God, the more we become what he has made us to be. You want to know who you are? Get as close to Jesus as possible. You want to know why the world has such weird, weird understanding of identity? Just look at how far away they are from Jesus. It's not hard to understand. He's the one who they derive, that we derive all of our being from. He's the creator. Of course, it's no, no wonder that people would be confused as to their personal identity. But we can hang on this. We can cling to this, that this creator God is who he is. This is a character of God, that he is creative, and he is a creator. And he bound up that creativity and wrote it into your DNA. Wrote it into you. This is what he did. His nature poured out. Now let's look at the canvas here that he worked with. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Now, much damage has been done to the understanding of this phrase by people who did not grasp Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy and understand the differences. If that went over your head, don't worry. You'll get it in just a second. The Hebrew words here are tohu vabohu. Right, or tohu wavo bohu, depending on when you, where, which side of the country you're reading on. But tohu vabohu, and the, the idea here is formless and void, and, and you have this great scholarship that was done uh, in the West, in particular with German liberalism and with some modern scholars who said, this means ruins. No, it doesn't. That's not what it means. That is a Western translation of an Eastern philosophy. This doesn't mean ruins. Tohu vabohu does not mean that there were ancient ruins there that God then built on top of. It's not what it means. No, the word tohu first means nothingness or lacking reality. Some Western scholars have insisted that this indicates that there was some sort of presence of something else. This is, I believe, fundamentally flawed understanding. But the reality is that this word, tohu, the first word, which we translate formless, means lacking reality or lacking substance. There's nothing there is what it means. There's a lacking of any re real form. And when you read ancient Hebrew and you read some of the ancient Hebrew texts, you find that this word is used often uh, in, in ancient Hebrew poetry not just biblical, but the others, to mean a lacking of reality or understanding of any kind of life or substance. That's what this is. This, the canvas had no sense of reality to it. 
And then bohu, the second word, means void or empty. That's how we translate it, void or empty. And it means lacking in any value. There was no value there. There was nothing of substance or reality, and there was no value. There was nothing to grab hold of, and there was nothing that could be giving anything away. There was no value. So there's no form or reality, and there's no value. It's empty. That's what the author is getting at, but it's more than that. It's saying without the creative presence of God, there is no substance and there is no value. Without the creative presence of God, there is no substance and there is no value. Value, therefore, is derived from God's creative imputation. Reality and value are given through one medium. One medium. You want to know where God, where you are, who you are. You want to have value and you want to have substance. You want to matter. If you want that, that is found in one place. In God himself. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. John 1 by him all things were created and live and move and have their being. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. The nature of a canvas without God is one that lacks reality and has no sense of value. The nature of a canvas without God is one that lacks reality and has no sense of value. As a result, there is a meaningless existence. Is it any wonder that we see in our world today people who reject who they are? People who don't value life. People who reject the designs that they have been created to live in. Without God, without Jesus living in people's hearts, there's a meaningless existence. As our wealth has skyrocketed in the last 15, 50 years, you know what else has skyrocketed? Rates of suicide, depression, and mental illness. We lack substance and value without God. We lack reality and value without God. The answer is at the beginning of the story. The God who created all things gives us the answer. Now the world gives us a lot of... Uh, false answers to this. And some of them have seeped into churches. Some of them have seeped into churches. So these might hurt a little bit when I mention them. Just take a deep breath. Don't worry. We get to the happy stuff in a minute. So the positivity movement. Think positively about yourself. <laughs> How do you think positively about something that doesn't have reality or value? You can't. And the only way to get reality and value is in Jesus. The defining self movement. Defining yourself, right? These are books that talk about personality types and who we are. Books that we often use to excuse our behavior. I mean, let's be, that's what we're doing. Let's be honest. We excuse our behavior going, well, I'm a this, therefore, I'm a lion, so you should understand I'm going to bite you. Like, no, no, that's not why those exist. Personality profiles, community activism. That's one of my favorites. The more work you do with your hands, maybe the better you'll feel about yourself. 
a myopic focus on pointlessness. That's the one that's coming. That's the one you can see in these generations that are coming up now. A myopic focus on nothing matters. Where they think that they're the only thing that exists and they don't think they have value. They don't think they can have reality or substance. So they live in a virtual world in which they declare everything is pointless and they can do whatever they want. It's nihilism painted over. That's all it is. It's humanism just painted over, painted over with a gloss, shiny screen that's invisible to the rest of the world. Those are the things that are coming. And look at the canvas here without God in it. Verse 2, the second part here. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now again, this is Hebrew poetry, and we have this beautiful representation. God is painting a picture. Darkness is over the face of the deep. Now in the Old Testament, when you have these two phrases, they matter. Deep is that big, scary unknown. It's called the deep. It's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe things. In the Bible, it's used to describe subterranean waters, the deep unknown. Monsters live in the deep. Monsters live in the deep. It's where Jonah was spit to, the deep. It's where Job and the psalmist say, please do not send us down to the deep. It's the great unknown, and that's what it is. It's unknown. And that's why it's so powerful in the Psalms when it says, even if I go down to the deep, you are there. Because God is victorious even over the great unknown. It's the great unknown. It's terrifying. Monsters live down there. It's where we go to die. The deep. Darkness hovered over it. And this is the phrase oppressive darkness. It's used in Job to uh, talk about a state of extreme gloom. Behold, my soul is bound up in darkness. Extreme gloom. Right? It's also used in Exodus when it talks about uh, the dark falling over the people, when it says there was no light in the land except in the land of Goshen where the Jews dwelled, and God caused the deep darkness to fall over the earth. That means that even though they tried to light lamps, there was darkness. They were blinded completely. It is utter and total darkness groping about with no hope of being able to see. Darkness hovered over the face of the deep. This is a terrifying picture, and it's beautiful poetry. Darkness hovers over the face of the deep. But what happens to a, a canvas that is in such utter despair and has no hope when God enters the picture? Read the next line. The Spirit of God. We put an and there. There shouldn't be an and there. We put one there. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Do you see what happened to darkness? God's Spirit shows up and darkness is gone. Because it was darkness over the face of the deep. Now it's the Spirit of God hovers over the face of what? Water. All of a sudden that which is unknown is known. We are, it is exposed and it is seen. The very presence of God destroys death. It destroys darkness and it destroys the deep. It makes the deep waters. 
Water is that which we derive our nourishment from, that which we can see, that we know what waters are. We know what waters are. Deep is terrifying, but it's gone in the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit suddenly comes into the picture and hovers over, is over the depth of the waters. This picture of the Spirit of God, of salvation of God that brings life over the deep, over the darkness, is used all throughout the Scripture. You see it with Noah's Ark. The Ark hovers over the face of the waters. You see it with Jesus, that He's over death. He resurrects over death. You see it all throughout the Old Testament when the prophets begin to speak about how the Lord is over and then names something. It is salvation, it is life, it is substance and reality by the very presence of God in the world. The deep becomes waters and the darkness is dispelled. The light of the world has come. Jesus Christ has come. Trust in him for all salvation. Trust in him for all salvation. Even the moments of terrifying life where the spirit of the Lord is, reality and, val and value are manifested and revealed. When we are embracing the things of the world, when people embrace the things of the world, they embrace dark and deep. They embrace those things. When they embrace those things, when the world, when we embrace those things, when we embrace sin, wickedness, we become more and more homogenous and look just like the rest of the world. When we embrace materialism and humanism, we become more and more homogenous just like the rest of the world. That's why all the people who run after sin look the same. Have you ever noticed? They're all uniquely the same. They all look the same. When teenagers do it, it's super obvious. They all start wearing the same color clothes or lack of color clothes. They all start painting their face the exact same way. Why? Because I'm unique. I'm different. You're just the same as all your friends. They're, adults do it too. They all start driving the same luxury cars. Start living in the same house. Peter, Paul, and Mary wrote that song years ago, Ticky Tack Houses. Little boxes on a hillside made of ticky-tack, and they all look just the same, right? That's what happens when you chase materialism and sin. You look just like everybody else, but in Christ's economy, when you chase Jesus, you begin to look more and more unique. You ever wonder why the church is such a weird bag of nuts? You ever wonder why we're so bizarre? Why you can have somebody who is erudite and well-dressed and incredibly strong and, and independent and a businessman sitting next to a man who can't get his shoes tied? You ever wonder? It's because when we pursue Christ, we become who we're supposed to be. And our unique character traits become more and more individual, and you have this odd bag of nuts in, a, in the church you have this mix, a trail mix of sorts that God delights in. And if you don't believe me, just read through the Gospels. You'll see. You'll see the 12 he chose. <laughs> why, would you, why would you put those guys together? That's not my all-star team. Just saying. I'm not picking them. I don't know that I would make the team. 
this is this is incredible he puts me in with people who are totally opposite of me totally different and as we get to know Christ they become more and more unique and I become more and more unique we become more and more beautiful this hodgepodge of colors on the canvas that God is painting of his church and you have the extremely educated next to the guy that couldn't graduate high school and you have the guy that can build anything the craftsman next to the guy that doesn't know how a hammer works by the way, if you're that guy, you hit things with a hammer. This is beautiful. The more we embrace Christ, the more beautiful we become. The more we find definition, purpose, individuality, and expressing expression. Knowing God brings truth, life, and reality. So, you want a full life? Read the Word. Know God. Get as close to him as possible. This is day one of the year. You can start now. Read the word. I, I do something with my church. I challenge people to races through the Bible. And if that troubles you, I want you to hear this. I race people through the Bible. I've gotten, the fastest I've gone is, uh, I did it in 14 days. Went through the whole Bible in 14 days. It was fun. And it was hard, and it was a lot of reading. There's all kinds of little rules I gave myself that I couldn't cheat with. I was beat by a dyslexic man who did it in 10. Isn't that awesome? He's literally dyslexic. He looks outside at signs and has to go, does that say stop or pots? Like he, he literally can't read things well, words get jumbled. He's the classic dysgraphia guy, and he beat me. I have a master's degree in divinity. I read for a living. And he beat me through the Bible that I love. And you know what that says to me? This book has something different in it this book means something so much more. It's a beautiful thing. You have started on day one. Get as close to him as possible. God's word brings life into existence. It brings his spirit and presence, brings substance and value to all things. And then here in verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this is where we're going to stop today, because if I keep going, I'm going to have to cover the whole chapter, and you guys will be here until four o'clock. So we're going we're gonna to pause here, but, but I want you to see this last thing. Light has come into the world by God's word, by his word, and he's given it to you in a thousand different ways. In a thousand different ways. Paul says he gave it to you through nature. That the word, that God's divine and inv invisible qualities were made known through nature so that no one would be without excuse. That means that the average person can walk outside and look around and go, yep, there's a God. And he exists. And get this. Because he's a creative God, and because of what we saw in creation, it means not only can you look outside and say, yes, he exists, but he can know him by walking outside. He can know him. 
God says that he wrote his own word into our body. He formed us by his word. He formed you humanity by his word. You know what that means. You can talk to somebody else and see there's a God because they exist and you exist. And not only do they exist and you exist, but they're creative. Descartes argues, and rightly so, that humanity cannot think beyond that which exists in front of them. Humanity cannot think beyond that which exists in front of them. You can't make up things that are beyond reality because you are tethered to reality. Now, you can make amalgams. You can make combinations. You can add things together and make something that looks a little different. But the reality is that you can't think beyond what already exists. You know what every person can think of? God. He wrote it into our mind, into our philosophy. He wrote it into our DNA. You can see God in the value of humanity. You can see him in the creativity of the arts. Where does creativity come from? You think you came up with it? You think I came up with it? I'm an artist as a side job. It's what I do on the side. And, and I can't paint things that don't exist. But what I paint doesn't exist. Just think about it for a second. You'll get it. I can't paint things that don't exist, but what I paint doesn't exist. That creativity to be able to bring something onto a canvas that looks unique and different, that comes from a God who exists, a God who made you creative and born it into your DNA. So we've got, you can see him in nature, you can see him in people, you can see him in your creativity. But chief among all things, you can see him in his word. You can see him in his word. And I mean in multiple ways. The written word of scripture, the word spoken about God and to God, the word sang, the word we sing to each other. You can see him in these things. You can see him in these places. You can see him in this life. The light has become man. The light of life became a man and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen the Father, but he has made him known. Jesus Christ has come and has made him known. Let there be light, and light is. What that literally reads is God said, light become and became light. Light became. It, it comes out because he says it. And he gives us light over the darkness and life where there was death. And in this year, in this 2023, oh, take back from the darkness what they try to take from us. Take it back. You are a Christian. You are not a coward. You are filled with the light of life. And nothing can overcome that light. When we read John 1, what does it say? It says, the light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. Indeed, that word overcome there is the word understood, overcome. means the darkness can't even grasp. It doesn't even have a, a way to understand it. The darkness cannot handle the light which is inside you. Oh, Christian, be it this year. Let it be this year that everyone you speak to hears of the light of Christ.
and seize it in you and seize it in the world. Make this world more beautiful by your life. It is the responsibility of every Christian to make his world or her world a little more beautiful. It's our job. Get to work. Oh, get to work. Get to work. Father, we pray that you would delight in us here as we love and worship you with all that we are. Lord, we ask that you would make yourself great and that we could take such joy in your presence. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.